One of the things that I said when I got here, and I have continued to remind you of one of my goals, is that all of us, myself included, would continue to fall in love with Jesus Christ. That our love for him would grow, that that affection that we have for him would increase. That that affection that we have for him would replace all other affections that might compete with it. Because we know that we live in a world that has many distracting noises and images and sounds. We pray that Jesus would be the one that we love day and night, would be on our hearts and our minds. Now having said that, when we look at this passage, I believe this is giving us more of an understanding about who Jesus Christ is so that we know who we're loving. So that that reason to love him is enriched and encouraged. Now when I read this passage, I thought about an image of my grandfather, my mother's father. He was born in 1888. And in the United States, in upstate New York or in New York, there was the blizzard of 88. So he used to say, I was born in the year of the blizzard of 88. And people who know him, yeah, but you were born in August and the blizzard was in January. <laughs> but he had a chair. It was next to the fireplace, the bookshelf behind him. My aunt's organ was over on this side of the, went out to his, Celeste, would we call that a conservatory that my grandfather had? Sunroom. We call them sunrooms. It was glass all around. Big roll-top desk, but he would sit there. My grandfather wore three-piece suits almost every day. I remember when he used to go to work and would come home on what we call a trolley, which is, you know, it's got the little thing to kick the electric. It's like a tram for you guys. And he would come walking home. He worked at U.S. Steel. But I thought about that chair. And then I thought about other chairs. When Celeste and I first got married, we lived for the summer with her grandmother. And she had a chair in the corner in the kitchen so she could see the television and she could, she for a long time would get up and, you know, contribute to the cooking. But that was her chair. And I thought about these chairs and I'm going to, I'm not going to do what I was thinking about doing at one point. I never decided to actually do this. But I'm going to put a chair out here. Because in this passage, the Jesus that we love is pictured as being seated at the right hand, being seated in the throne room. Because of what we learned last week, what does he do? He intercedes because he has laid down his life for us as a sacrifice. He's seated. 
See, we live in a very anxious world. We live in a world that is, that is lonely. We live in a world that has all these descriptions that I think that if you think about Jesus Christ being seated, means you can be drawn to him. Because, you see, what we see is Jesus isn't anxious. He's not running around. He's not, oh, i got to do this, i got to do that. Now, how does God work? He works through the Holy Spirit. He works through the Word of God. He works through his people. But Jesus Christ is seated. And I'm starting with my application before I get into my exposition because I want you to remember that every time you see a chair, you see a seat. I want you to remember this passage. I want you to remember that Jesus Christ is seated in the throne room. And according to the passages that are around us, one of the things he's doing is interceding for us. So if he's not anxious, it should help me not to be anxious. I know that he is interceding for me. I am not alone. He is concerned about me, but he is seated. Now, we also know that it seems like the older you get, the more you spend in a chair. But this image is given to us deliberately by God. Because what he is doing is he is exposing us to heaven. We're going to look at the copy that was Israel. It was created by the law. Then we're going to look at what Christ does in the real places based upon the covenant and promises. That contrast, law and promise, law and covenant, is here again in this passage. The difference between the high priest that we have, that Christ is that high priest who is seated there for us. I've always thought that it's very interesting that, that you have Christ as the high priest seated next to the throne of majesty, seated next to the Father. And the image is not a prophet, the image is not a king, but the image is a high priest. And see, I think we miss a great opportunity both in understanding and how much he loved us because he was the high priest who gave his life for his people. He is the high priest who intercedes for them so that when you think about this epidemic of loneliness that we have in our culture, being willing by faith to go back to a passage like this and say there's somebody who's interceding for me, somebody who notices me every day, every moment. And so when I see a chair, I can think that the high priest is there. That God is there with me, for me. Now, this passage, 
Um, you've heard me mention my English teachers in high school. I think about my 11th grade English teacher. And I look at this, and you look at the first part of verse 1. What does it say? Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Now, is that an attention-getting thing? Does does the writer want you to pay attention? This is the point, people. It's like when your teacher says, this is going to be on the test. Pay attention. And so we're a little more than halfway through, but to have him create this written stop, say, pay attention. Because you get down to verse 6, he's going to say, but as it is, you see, he's, he's using these attention-getting words to say, pay attention, folks. So if you think of, of what we have looked at in chapters 1 through 7 and could come up on this and say, the point in what we are saying is this, we have a great high priest. We have a high priest. And the first description of him is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The writer says, this is one of the most important things I'm going to be telling you in my whole book. We need to hear that we, that collectively... Not just individually, but collectively, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. See, that's one of the things about understanding the the book of Hebrews and understanding the world that it's exposing us to. In the world of worship, in the world of our spiritual lives, that we have somebody in heaven who is seated and who is there for us. What's in heaven relates to what's here. And so, my point from this is take comfort in a chair to remind you that Christ is seated on our behalf interceding because he has finished his sacrifice. See, he doesn't have to get up and do it again. He doesn't have to repeat it. That's one of the things about the book of Hebrews that will tell us again and again that is so different than every other religion in the world. Christ is a once-for-all sacrifice as a substitute for us. He only died once. Resurrected. Now, where is he? Now, I know I have a weird sense of humor but I wondered why the church adopted the cross as something to wear their, around their neck and not a chair. I was trying to create 
a little thing to put on our Facebook page about this, and I found this Pictish throne chair. Very simple. Because I was, I was trying to imagine, and God doesn't say, okay, this is what the throne looks like. He doesn't give us the architecture. He doesn't give us a schematic. He just says, he's there, he's seated. I don't know what's going to happen to any of us this next week. You know I use often the image of our life sometimes. It's like driving on a single track road and you don't know what's beyond the blind rise or the curve. But you're going to deal with it. It's already there. Some of you came to this worship service with things on your mind about this next week. What I want to give you out of the first part of this service is this image of Christ being seated who is there for you. It is not an anxious Christ. It is not a nervous Christ. It is not a lonely Christ. And by naming him as a high priest, someone who is there for the people, to represent God to the people, and to represent the people to God. See, by faith we need to remember that. By faith we need to love Jesus as our great high priest, who is there for us, both to represent God to us, and then to let him represent us to God. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places. See, he's already there. He's already in the holy places. Now, this next thing, I've always thought this is kind of an interesting turn of a phrase. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That tent in heaven, we'll see in the next couple of verses, is what Moses and his generation recreated on earth, a tent. Not a building, not a temple made out of wood or stone, but a tent. My earliest memory of a tent, and this dates me, I know. My parents, like a lot of people in their generation who started their families right after World War II, if you wanted camping gear, you went down to the Army-Navy supply store and you bought surplus tents. And so we put up this umbrella tent, and you go inside, and it had this special smell. It wasn't a bad smell, but it was identifiable. Every time we opened it up before we aired it, because it had been all crumpled up together. Crumpled is the wrong word. My father was very orderly in putting away the tent. We learned how to roll it without, you know, all the things that we learned. But it was a tent that moved. 
And I think sometimes it's hard for us to think about a tent in heaven that moves, but yet we need to realize that who is God speaking? He's not just speaking to people in Scotland and America and France. He's speaking to people in Africa and Asia, South America, all the islands. And see, I think that's why a tent because God says it's a tent that it makes it more accessible. Because see, the poorest of the poor can identify with a tent. They can't identify with a marble building or a granite building or something like that, but they can identify with a tent. Nomads. People that move that don't live in one place. But the end of verse 2. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Because see, we're going to have the contrast See, he is giving us an image, he is giving us a description of what God did, not what man has done, but what God did. Because when we get to verses 3, 4, and 5, verse 5 reminds us that he calls it a a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. See, by faith, through scripture, we believe this is the way God has created things. We need to take comfort in his word. When we look at verses 3, 4, and 5, and we see the contrast between the high priests that we have and the high priest of the law, who is doing at least two things, he's standing... No chairs in the temple. He's standing, and he's standing in front of an altar that he has to continue to offer sacrifices day after day after day. Last week he said he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins and then the sins of the people. But Christ is seated. He doesn't have to be like these ones. And again, the contrast in this passage And I constantly am going to go back and say in this passage, because I have to remember that what we are talking about is going to be woven into the next several chapters. That when he's saying, now the point of what we are saying is this, and then he gives us all of this. See, a priest had to be offering. He was offering and offering and offering and offering, and Christ is seated. Do you understand how this transaction, this transition from all these priests that are appointed by the law is appointed to the one priest that is appointed by covenant and promise Just that difference between standing and being seated. Now, 
Now, we all, we all know that when we get anxious, when we get nervous, when we get angry and all that, sometimes the best thing we can do is just sit down, just chill. What I want us to do is to remind us that Christ is there. What's causing us anxiety, what's even causing us anger, all the things that we have, if we focus on the high priest who is seated because his ministry of paying for our sins is done. You see, 3, 4, and 5 could almost be like we have people today who feel like they have to do this, they have to do that as Christians. They turn Christianity into a workspace religion, something that they, I have to do this, I have to do that. As opposed to a seat. I mean, the contrast is just mind-boggling of standing and seating, sitting. And so what, what is going on, you know, in, in the middle of five, it says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. This place of worship, even the architecture was given to them by God. Now, one of the things that this passage gets us into is that our worship, what we do in God's presence, should be a response of what he's called us to do. Um... Verse 4, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. See, and that's in contrast to the end of 6 when they are enacted on, uh, on better promises, the law and the promises. Do, do, you, do you hear the difference between totally, this is what you must do, as opposed to responding to the promises from God. Now, the idea of both law and promises are based on the fact that God can communicate that to us, that God gave us the law, that God gave us the promises. That your life as a Christian is based on the promises that God has spoken and God has written down. Let's go to the last two verses, 6 and 7. My English teacher again. But as it is, in other words, okay, we're, we're coming back to, yes, that's the way it was with the law and all those sacrifices. But now, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the, old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. You have this old, this new, this old, this present. That Christ is a mediator of a covenant. The covenant, remember we had a whole sermon series 
on the covenant. Of God's proclamation of his grace, his commitment to in grace. But you see, the writer is dealing with people who are having to give up on a temple that a lot of them had visited, a lot of them had been to, and they'd heard stories about it, and the places where they'd maybe worshipped, and all of a sudden saying everything has changed because of Christ. See, I think sometimes we don't understand how drastic Christianity can be to people today when, when they are so oriented to success and getting things done. that they find it hard to be by faith and to trust him. But notice, again, let's, let's go back to the beginning of verse 6. But that as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since... Is it enacted by better promises? You see, our faith is encouraged by God's word, the better promises. That if we don't listen to the word of God, if we try to gin it up in ourselves the way the world wants us to, we're going to miss out on what God is doing. That he has given us promises that are true. See, and if we don't go back to those promises, if we don't go back to the images that he's given us, like the chair, like being seated. See, your faith needs to be fueled by scripture, by the promises, by the covenant. Now, I keep trying to learn about where I live. So as I watch the BBC News and I see things and I, I read about these promises that were made in the election. And I contrast that with the covenant promises that God has made. You see, for a lot of people, they, they look at the failures of humanity, how we fail each other, how governments and corporations and marriages and all kinds of things fail. But God makes a covenant and a promise that he's kept because the priest is in the seat. Christ has obtained a ministry It is enacted on better promises. See, how do you know about Christ to fall in love with him? You've got to listen to those promises. You've got to listen to the word of God. And then we're going to wrap this up in verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, what's going to happen is that we're going to understand more about that new covenant, about the second covenant, about its relationship to the first covenant. We're going to see all of that in the rest of the book of Hebrews. 
But you see, do you understand the transition that the writer is trying to get the people of God to make, to understand how things have changed because Christ died on the cross once and for all, was raised, ascended, seated. The high priest, the one that intercedes for us, the one who died for us is seated. And it's sealed up in the covenant that we're going to be exploring and understand, but it's sealed up in a commitment that he has spoken about and that he will keep. You see, today, most people, when they hear people make promises, they go, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. You're saying that to get elected. You're saying that to sell something. When I was on active duty for the first time, I was in a, at an Air Force base in upstate New York, which was just 12 miles from the Canadian border. Um, and it was cold. The first we were, year we were there, we had two weeks, 14 days, where it never went above zero. I'm not talking about 30 degrees freezing. I'm talking about cold weather. Now, where does the United States of America get its most volunteers? From the South. We had kids that were paralyzed. They just couldn't understand what was going on because it was so cold. Because we would have snow that would be 30 inches at a time and we would have, you'd walk on these canyons where you'd have six feet of snow on both sides as you walk from building to building or, you know, whatever. I mean, I, we, our kids just thought it was crazy that when they would go to school that they would walk out and go down this canyon of snow to go to school. And so you had all these kids, and what they would do is they would get up, go to the chow hall, go to work, go to the chow hall, and go back to their dorm. And that's what they thought about military life, because they weren't willing to get out there. They weren't willing to experience the chain. We had young people who misunderstood because you know how you get locked into your way of thinking? The first sergeants, those enlisted men and women that look after the other enlisted people, would say, you have to layer. And they would give them the best equipment to layer. First sergeants walking along... There's this girl standing guard with her gun and just waiting. And, and she looks, something's wrong. He looks at her and says, wrong. And what she had done is she heard layer. She had put on seven pairs of socks and in her military winter boots had cut off the circulation to her feet. because she had had no experience in this. 
And so the first sergeants were constantly thinking, what do we have to think of in terms of the mistakes that young people are going to make or misunderstand how we do it? So that when I tell you that Jesus Christ is seated as a high priest, at God's right hand, interceding for you, See, I don't want you to see this as some kind of rabbit's foot, some kind of lucky thing. Well, I just have to, you know, Fred said, think chair, and it, everything's going to be all right. See, having an intercessor means someone's going to, as the psalmist would say, walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. Knowing that you're not alone does not mean that it's everything is going to be okay. It's going to be a warm beach and all that kind of stuff. No. So when we disciple young Christians, when we work with people about their relationship with God, and we give them something like that, the high priest is seated. See, we can't use that and say, well, it doesn't matter whether I sin or not, he's going to forgive me. Because he's a minister in a holy place, the place says. But we need to talk about holiness. And so as we go through and we weave our way through Hebrews because the, the themes are going to be coming back because they're going to call things from the Old Testament. I mean, how many times does the word covenant and promise come up in the Old Testament? But we've been given something new. The high priest who was seated. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you, first of all, Jesus, that we can come to you knowing that you are there interceding for us, that you are the great high priest, that you have paid the price for our sins, that you do not need to sacrifice again, that your sacrifice really was once for all, for all of my sins but that I am not alone, that I don't have to be anxious, I don't have to be stressed, because you are seated. You are seated next to God. You are seated in the holy place. And so as we minister to a generation that is full of stress and anxiety and anger and loneliness, Help us to hear the promises. The promises that are made in a commitment of a covenant sealed with the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this gift. We thank you for these words of Scripture. These words of promise. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.